Welcome to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, your own personal health reporter. Take a second to look at the veins on the back of your hands or the inside of your wrists. They are filled with blood, which is ordinarily red. But the blood in these veins is blue. Do you know why? If you're not sure, I'm going to put the question to my guest. She's Dr. Cindy Asbjornsson. She is the founder of the Vein Healthcare Center in South Portland, Maine, and she is a board-certified phlebologist or vein specialist. So why is the blood in our veins blue instead of red? Well, it's important to remember the difference between veins and arteries. Arteries are the vessels that carry the freshly oxygenated bright red blood away from our heart down to our extremities where our body's tissue uses the oxygen. And then that once the oxygen's removed from the blood, it takes on a different color, almost a more bluish, darker red kind of color. And that's the blood that travels back up to our heart in our veins or our venous system. All right, thank you for that quick lesson. I'm curious, you are a board certified family practice physician and family practitioners generally provide comprehensive or total body care, but you decided you wanted to focus on veins. Why? Yes, I did. Mostly because when I was in training, it just seemed like a better fit for me and my personality. And what I mean by that is I've, I've always thought I would be a primary care doctor or a family practice doctor. But as I got into the training, I learned a lot of what we do in primary care is manage chronic issues and we really have to push our patients to do the healthy thing for their bodies. Um, let's use hypertension as an example. Many patients follow with the primary care doctor for management of high blood pressure. And oftentimes that requires a doctor to say, hey, you need to take this pill every single day for the rest of your life. And a lot of patients say, geez, I don't wanna do that. And you can talk about alternative ways, but really at the end of the day, it's the pill that's gonna help them the most. So it becomes a conversation where the doctor's pushing for the medicine because they believe that's the right thing and the patient's saying, but it makes me tired and feel horrible. And you get into these, these situations where you really almost have to be a little pushy. And I'm not a pushy person. <laughs> so it was a kind of funny, funny realization as I was as I was going through training. And I learned that with some medical problems, like venous disease, for example, People have such symptoms and such compromise in their day-to-day -day life that they come to their doctor very motivated for a change. And that change can be um, something very minor in terms of their lifestyle. It can be uh, something more drastic, like an intervention, but they come ready and open for that change. They're actually looking for something. And it was very... Um, empowering, I guess, to be able to provide the answers, whether it's just through education or through intervention to help these people. And I think at the end of the day, we all go into medicine with the idea of helping people. And it was through vein care that I felt like I could have the biggest impact on and actually make positive change in people's lives. And you still feel that way? Absolutely. Well, let's do a little more educating here. So you explained about the difference between veins and arteries, and there's another type of blood vessel that connects the two, right? I, they're called capillaries? 
Yes, as arteries get smaller and smaller, they become arterioles. And then where the blood actually passes from the tiniest of arteries into the tiniest of veins, we have a capillary. Okay. And I read someplace that if you laid this entire system of blood vessels and stretched it out, it would be, (laughs) what, (laughs) 100,000? It could go around the world how many times? (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing how many blood vessels we have and their interconnectedness and just what we call collateralization or how there's maybe one highway, but there's multiple back roads to get to the same place. That's a good way of describing it. So we're going to focus on the veins. And as I understand it, we've got veins um, that we can see near the surface of our skin, like the ones on our hands and wrists. And then we have veins that are deep, deep inside of our bodies. Do you take care of both types? I do. And my practice, we primarily focus on the lower extremities because that is the most common place to have a venous issue. And we do try to separate the veins into two big groups, the veins that run underneath all the muscles in our legs, deep down towards the center, which we call our deep veins. And those are the workhorses. Those are the most important veins we have in our legs because they benefit the most from our muscular contractions. If we go back to those capillaries, when the blood leaves the arterial system and enters the venous system, there's really no pressure at all. The pressure can be measured at zero. And the way our our body gets the blood back up is through our calf and our foot muscle squeezes. So we often say the, the calf muscle pump is like the heart of the venous system. And with that, those deep veins benefit the most from the squeeze because they're under the muscles and they carry about 85% of the blood from the feet back up to the heart. The superficial veins are more prone to problems and they're, they're much less important in the sense that they only carry about 15% of the blood, but they live in an area where they can wreak all kinds of havoc from uh, visible um, un- unattractiveness to symptoms including swelling, aching, pain, cramping, to actual ulceration of the skin or skin changes where your lower extremities might have a brown woody appearance or even kind of a bluish tinge to them. So they're usually, the superficial system, usually responsible for more of the venous symptoms and the venous issues that we see. Okay, well, I'd like to go from issue to issue and have you explain. Maybe we should start with the superficial. So spider veins, are they the most superficial? They are, they absolutely are. And how I try to look at it is on a continuum. Um, Oftentimes spider veins are the tip of an iceberg, meaning even though they're the smallest veins and you can really see them through the surface of the skin the easiest, a lot of times if you have a spider vein problem, that's not where the problem starts. It could be a larger vein feeding that vein or an even larger vein feeding the vein that's feeding that vein. So when my approach to vein care, especially the superficial system, is to find out where the problem starts. Oftentimes what we'll find when we use ultrasound and really look at blood flow through our entire venous system is there'll be an area where say a high pressure vein connects to a low pressure vein and we'll have valve failure or the little the little valve that would keep the blood in the deep system has failed and now that blood can basically leak out of the deep vein into the superficial vein 
and take out all the little veins downstream, almost a domino effect. And what you'll see is a small spider vein first appear on the very surface of your skin. Left untreated, sometimes that will turn into a darker blue vein that eventually varicoses or becomes lumpy and bulges through the surface of the skin. And then eventually you can get into some of the end stages of venous disease where you can get those brown woody appearances or even skin ulceration. So this doesn't happen instantly. This is a long continuum, but because they're all related, I try to always look at the big picture, even when we're just dealing with something as small as a spider vein. Okay, so somebody comes in with spider veins, and uh, a lot of people think, oh, well, that's just a cosmetic issue. Get over it. But <laughs> Yes, you're right. In fact, a lot of my patients have been told that by doctors for years because for a long time, the medical community thought that's the way it was. Well, so what do you do when somebody comes in and wants you to look, take a look at their spider veins? How do you use ultrasound, for instance? Well, the first thing we do is a comprehensive, thorough evaluation of the entire person and their full health, their whole health history. And we try to look at everything that could be contributing to this current issue. The way we use ultrasound is basically by making a map. Remember I, I said the highway and the back roads? Just like you might map a town and all of its road system, we try to use the ultrasound to see what's connected to what and we try to start at a problem and work our way back to health. And I think that's probably the most important step in an evaluation is to find where the healthy flow turns and starts becoming unhealthy flow. And with that, that's where we wanna target our treatment. We wanna look at where it is, how big it is, and how much backflow we can see in the faulty vein. And that's gonna dictate what the next steps would be. So you use the ultrasound to be able to make that determination? Yes. Okay. And so you figure out where the problem is. How do you fix it? Well, again, it's going to depend on those three things, where it is, how big it is, and how much it leaks. And depending on those three things, we're going to try to use the least invasive, most effective treatment. And I always try to give patients options. I think options in medicine are always important. And for many patients, depending on you know those criteria, getting into a pair of graduated compression stockings might be all the treatment they need. Um, the compression stockings will stop the progression of the disease, which is always important, and it will control the symptoms. So if they have aching or heaviness or cramping at night, it'll make those symptoms go away. Many people, especially young, otherwise healthy people say, geez, those stockings might be fine through the winter months in Maine, but come summer, I really don't wanna put them on. And for those folks, I say that's great because we have plenty of other options. Um, really, since 1999, when the endovascular approach to vein care got its FDA approval, it's just been continuously improved upon, modified, and advanced through other means. You use laser treatments a lot or radio frequency treatments to... So both of those treatments are endovascular thermal approaches to vein care. And we do use quite a bit of them. Usually those are for larger veins um, with a significant reflux. In fact, those are the procedures that have really replaced the classic stripping. The difference being a stripping had a very low success rate, whereas the endovascular approach has a very high success rate. Other differences include the fact that 
the endovascular approach is done as an outpatient. So people can come into the office. They might be there for maybe up to an hour, but oftentimes not even that long. And instead of making any open incisions, we basically place a, an IV into the leg or a little tiny plastic tube. Then we thread the heat delivery mechanism, which is either a laser fiber or a radiofrequency catheter. And then we add a little numbing medicine, turn the heat source on, slowly pull it away from the area that we're treating, and we're all done. So it's a very, very easy procedure. Patients walk in, they walk out, and they're pretty much right back to their normal activities compared to a stripping where they might have even had to have been hospitalized for several days and then a long, slow, re painful recovery. Yeah, I remember my dad had a vein stripped decades ago, and later on it caused him problems because he needed another way to be able to divert some blood flow. And because this major vein was missing, I think it just messed everything up in the leg. Oftentimes with strippings, it was hard to see the full impact of what would happen down the road. And oftentimes with strippings, we'd damage lymphatic vessels as well, which would lead to chronic swelling and other, other more or less unpleasant outcomes for the patient. So when you do this ablation procedure, are you destroying this, the vessel? Are you closing it off? What, what's actually happening to it? Um, we're sealing the leaky spot shut. So if you can imagine having healthy blood flow towards your heart leaking at a junction, we just seal that little junction off. And then all of the downstream veins, let's say the varicosities and the spider veins, no longer have flow because the flow, the healthy flow had been replaced by this backflow from the broken valve. So once these veins don't have flow, your body slowly shuts them down and reabsorbs them. And it becomes the work of your immune system to break down these leftover veins and to clear the areas. So it's a slower process than say a stripping, but a much, better process for your body and ten that tends to last a lot longer. Okay. Now, I want to make sure that I understand correctly. You don't usually do this when it's just a superficial spider vein and you don't see any major issues uh, somewhere else along the line. You're more apt to use this with um, somebody who has, say, the varicose veins? Yes, but... There are people who you just don't see the varicose veins, even though they're already present under the skin. And those folks might come in with just spider veins. They might come in with absolutely no visible veins on their legs at all, just the symptoms consistent with venous disease, say swelling, um, aching, heaviness, uh, a fatigue by the end of the day. The, the folks who come in who say, you know, Doc, I don't know if these are my veins, but every day I come home from work and I just need to sit down in my chair and get my feet up for five minutes or I can't even get dinner on the table. Those are more or less the classic symptoms of venous disease. And even if they don't have the visible varicose veins, sometimes we end up using the laser or the endovascular approach to treat them. Okay. I know somebody's going to want to know. So do you ever just do those superficial spider yes. veins and how, how do you treat those again it all depends on where the problem starts how big it is hmm. and how much backflow but oftentimes we'll use a procedure called sclerotherapy which is a form of a treatment that's been around for 
a very, very long time, over hundreds of years. Um, and it, what it is, is basically an injection of a medicine into that same spot, usually where a superficial vein or a low pressure vein is leaking into another low pressure vein. And what the medicine does is causes the vein walls to become sticky or irritated. And then we have you wear compression stockings for a short period, which holds the vein shut while the vein uh, heals. So as it heals, it's sealed shut and then your body has the ability to absorb that segment as well as all of the downstream veins. Okay. Now I want to talk about the varicose veins a little bit. The ones that you can see, they're usually pretty swollen and twisted, not very pretty looking at all. And they generally hurt? Oftentimes they do. People will say the veins themselves feel like a bruise that just never goes away. There'll be an almost a tenderness to their legs. And then more importantly, through the course of a day, they might wake up feeling great, but through the day, their legs become heavy, achy, tired, and oftentimes crampy. Another symptom that may be associated with venous disease that we're, we're a little unsure of as a medical community, but the current recommendation is if you have this, you should have your veins checked, is restless leg syndrome. I say we're unsure because we don't really think veins cause restless leg syndrome, but somehow having that kind of back pressure exacerbates it. So we have some research that shows if you treat your venous disease, your restless leg issues will get better. So explain a little bit about the restless leg problems. Is that something that usually happens when you are at rest, but your legs don't want to settle down? Exactly, exactly. Oftentimes when you lie down to go to sleep at night, your legs just feel jumpy and they won't stay still. And it's not a, a mental movement of your legs, it's just they won't stay still. Almost like little nerves are firing and causing muscles to just contract and relax. Sounds like somebody should um, perhaps try doing some kind of a relaxation exercise before they go to bed or is that... Not, it doesn't not. seem to help. Um, there's been some research on relaxation techniques, but generally speaking, because it's not a mentally controlled process, it's just almost like a reflex, like these nerves are just firing for some reason and your legs are very twitchy. Almost if you've ever had a muscle twitch, you can't really control it. It just does its thing. Oh, yeah. I get, had those in my eyes before. I <laughs> <laughs> okay, so with the varicose veins, if you've got really bad varicose veins, will you still use that laser technique to treat them? Um, usually. Uh, but again, it's going to go back to where it is, how big it is, and how dilated it is. Um, we have plenty of other techniques with many new techniques coming down the pike as well. Um, just recently, over the last really four or five years, we've introduced a procedure called uh, Clarivane, where we use it, a mechanical um, device to irritate the vein wall as we spray sclerotherapy or the sclerosant from the sclerotherapy on the vein walls. We have a new preparation of sclerotherapy where instead of injecting a liquid, the liquid has been mixed with gases that turn it into almost a foam or, or a thicker substance that can cover more area and be much more effective in a safe way. For years, uh, physicians would mix room air with the, scler with the liquid sclerosant 
and we know that room air is not a good thing to inject into veins, but this new proprietarial formulation um, is very, very safe because all of the bubbles are calibrated to be a certain size and to disappear at a certain time. Um, we also have the new uh, super glue or cyanoacrylate which has been approved to inject into veins, which is very exciting. So many, many treatments, mm -hmm. all very, very minimally invasive, all with the same goal of closing down the highest place where we see backflow or a leak. So what happens if a varicose vein is not treated and it gets worse and worse? What might happen? So usually the process is the pressure builds and builds down at the level below your knee. Symptoms continue to progress, oftentimes to a point where your legs become unbearably uncomfortable. And around that same time, you start to see the end stages of disease, which can be bleeding varicosities, um, where the veins become so superficial, even just a sheet in, while you're in bed can slough off the top, causing pretty impressive bleeding. Or you can get these ulcers where there's so much back pressure from the inside of your leg out, your skin literally starts to break down and you get these open sores that drain a tremendous amount of fluid and can be very, very unpleasant to live with, oftentimes putting you at greater risk for infection and other complications. I would assume that those ulcers don't heal very easily. No, I've seen patients who've had ulcers open for greater than 20 years. Um, and without intervention, oftentimes they just won't close. All right, let's move on to something called deep vein thrombosis. That's an ent yeah. entirely different animal? Yes, but before we jump on, I just want to jump back to sclerotherapy for a moment. You know, we mentioned it. I said it's been around forever. I know there will be listeners out there who will cringe at the thought and say, oh, I had that, that was the most horrible thing. I just wanna say that in the last really 10 years, we've had major advances in this procedure where historically we injected pretty caustic agents into veins that didn't always work, oftentimes caused all kinds of pain and other untowardsly complications like skin ulcerations mm -hmm. and allergic responses. And we've had death and limb loss and all kinds of horrible things associated with sclerotherapy. But we've had newer sclerosins or newer medicines that have gotten FDA approval, some of which are hypoallergenic, pH balance, antimicrobial in nature, and all of the complications or unpleasant effects from sclerotherapy of the past are truly a thing of the past now. And sclerotherapy today is quite a different thing from sclerotherapy even 10 or 15 years ago. But still, you want somebody who really knows what he or she is doing. Oh, absolutely. To, to do it. <laughs> and, and who's using these current medications, because just because they're FDA approved doesn't mean they're um, actually being delivered. Right. Okay. So back to DVT. Right. So DVT is a completely different pathology. Instead of having a valve break causing a problem, it's more of a clotting issue where a vein gets essentially plugged up. And we can have all different kinds of, of DVTs where um, the vein might be partially 
plugged up, could be completely plugged up. It could be plugged up in a place where there's a lot of pressure, like up in your high thigh, or plugged up in a place, you know, maybe down in your calf where there's two veins exactly equal doing the same thing. So we tend to approach DVT more on where it is, how big it is, and how much potential for harm it has. So if we talk about a, a clot in your high thigh that's completely occlusive or the vein thickness is completely plugged up, we've already said that these are high pressure veins. So pressure can build behind these clots and they can break free. Once they break free, we don't call it a deep vein thrombosis anymore. Now it's an embolism because it's traveling. And the most likely place for it to travel since all blood goes back up to your heart and your venous system is to your heart. And your heart has these great big chambers where it'll land and it'll just basically pass through the chambers of your heart. It enters the right top and then drops down to the right bottom of your heart and it goes over to your lungs in most people. Once it gets to your lungs, your lungs are like a very fine filter and it usually gets caught in that filter and becomes something known as a pulmonary embolism. Pulmonary embolisms run the whole gamut from being completely asymptomatic or not showing any signs or symptoms to deadly, they can kill you. The other option is some people, we think maybe as many as one in three, will have a little communication or a little hole in their heart where some of the blood that comes into that top right section of the heart just skips right over to the left side of the left top of your heart. <laughs> um, when that happens, if there's a clot and it passes through one of these communications, it'll go down into the left side of the bottom of your heart and then it will get pumped out into your body. Most of the blood with every heartbeat goes straight up to your brain. So chances are the clot would then travel to your brain and instead of being called a pulmonary embolism, it would be called a stroke because usually in your brain, the vessels get smaller and smaller and at the level where of the size of the clot, it would get lodged or get stuck. And that's basically would be an embolic stroke. Okay, we don't want that to happen. No. <laughs> so what so, causes them in the first place? We think it's really a perfect storm. We know there's three big uh, predisposing risk factors, but generally speaking, there's a lot of small risk factors. And when you put a whole bunch of these risk factors together, boom, you create a clot. So the big three are what we call stasis or basically sitting around too much. And I don't mean sitting around, you know, on your couch eating potato chips. I mean, when you're stuck in a seated position, you know, some of the famous people who have had clots are people who have been in airplanes like President Nixon, even on Air Force One, or reporters who have been in um, tight spaces like tanks overseas covering war coverage. Um, people on airplanes who are or buses who are stuck in a seat and can't get up for extended periods. Also our hospitalized patients who are stuck in a bed because for one reason or another, they just can't get up and move freely. So that's what we mean by stasis. The second big risk factor is endothelial damage. And that's just a fancy way of saying something has happened to one of your vein walls, usually trauma. So it could be from a, a very bad bruise. It could be from an actual cut, like in a car accident or something like that. Or it could be surgically induced. When we perform surgery, we always increase clotting risk. 
Um, so we try to protect people from that. Then the third and final risk factor is a little less controllable, and that is what we call having a hypercoagulable state. So the most common hypercoagulable states, well, there's, there's actually, there's two groups of hypercoagulable states, the kind that we're born with and the kind that we acquire through life. The kind that we're born with are usually genetic in nature, where we know that we've gotten, you know, even when we're born because our mother and our grandmother and our great-grandmother all suffered with the same state. Um, and they're usually identified relatively young in life. And then there's the kind we pick up. Um, disease processes like cancer will cause you to be hypercoagulable. Or pregnancy, processes we think of as a, a physiologic or a healthy state can cause you to become hypercoagulable. So we know there are plenty of people out there who are pregnant and have C-sections. So they have pregnancy working against them for a hypercoagulable state. They have endothelial damage from the surgery they have to actually deliver the baby. And they're basically stuck in bed for a while. So they have stasis working against them too. And they don't clot. But for some reason, those are the three big things that tend to cause clotting. And how would you know? Would you have pain all of a sudden? Most people will have unexplained pain or swelling. Swelling is a big one. Um, some people don't get symptoms, but usually when it's an occlusive clot, there'll be at least a period where they'll look down and they'll say, yeah, I, I must have twisted my ankle or you know, overdone it because my left leg or my right leg is all swollen. And they usually write it off to something else. And that's the, the big flaw. If people were conscientious that this could be a clot and got checked, then they could get treatment before it ever did any harm. Can it go away on its own? Yes, but once it becomes occlusive, and usually since there's blood passing by the clot, they build and build. Um, and because it's there, there's usually a reason it's there. And until you address the reason, it generally doesn't go away. Okay, so back to my dad again, who had issues like this. I remember he had surgery to put in some kind of a gate, a mesh gate. <laughs> a filter, yes. Yes, a filter. That's what it was. Um, but that's not the first go-to. Not anymore. We, we used to place a lot of filters. Um, Greenfield filters were the most common. And then we went to more removable filters. And now we find really the best method of controlling DVTs is with blood thinners or medicines that cause your blood to not clot and prevention. I think there's been a lot of awareness about DVTs and um, how to prevent them. So things like when you get on the airplane, staying hydrated, walking regularly, tapping your toes. Um, I think that's much more commonly known now than say it was 10 or even 15 years ago. And to get personal, I sit at my computer for long periods of time. Even though I have this little app that reminds me to get up, <laughs> I just get a little too focused. So I'm putting myself at risk, probably. In a way, yes. But most otherwise healthy people have a physiologic response where if you're, even if you're sitting at a computer, you probably tap your toes without even realizing it every now and then. Or you just shift in your seat in a way that causes muscle contractions that helps the blood get out of your feet. That's not to say sitting all day is okay. Right. <laughs> and you should you should be aware and you know ideally every hour get up and, and tap your toes. 
a couple of years ago, there was a, a young a young boy, I think he was only 16, um, and he was in Japan playing a, a video game tournament. It was a chess tournament all online, and he sat so focused for so long, he actually got a DVT and ended up dying from it. Oh, my goodness. So it, it can be, you know, when you are that focused, when you are that sucked into whatever you're doing at the computer, it can be dangerous. So having, you know, the timer or... You know, my my rule of thumb is I always keep a glass of water and I make sure I drink that water. And as long as I'm drinking, I know I'm going to have to get up and go to the bathroom at some point. And it serves two purposes. It keeps me hydrated and it forces me to get up. <laughs> okay, so I was going to ask you some tips that um, to prevent any kind of venous disease or at least make you feel better. Uh, so you've given us some. We need to move. Definitely moving. Be hydrated. Calf muscle contraction and foot contraction are the two best ways to protect both your superficial and your deep system. In fact, I don't think I do an intervention where part of my post-op paperwork doesn't include 30 minutes of walking every day. And my hope is always that once my patients get into the habit of walking 30 minutes, they'll continue it because it's definitely the best thing you can do for your legs. I just thought of something. What about crossing your legs? <laughs> is that not okay? So we're not sure if this is a myth or not, but the theory is veins are very compressible. It doesn't take much pressure to smush a vein. And when you cross your leg, the legs on the back of the vein, uh, the veins on the back of the leg that's on the top and the top of the leg that's on the bottom can actually get compressed. If you hold a vein compressed too long, you can do damage. However, most people, if they sit cross-legged that long, their foot will start to go numb or they'll feel that, that natural urge to just move. So most leg crossers, as long as they don't stay crossed for hours, meaning they cross their leg and the person in the airplane seat in front of them puts the seat back so now they can't uncross, mm. most people will have that natural urge to uncross before they do damage. All right. Is there anything that I have not asked you that you think would be important for people to know? I think the most important thing is awareness. Knowing that clots happen and that they shouldn't ignore symptoms in their legs. And also knowing that some of the subtle symptoms that they could be living with, the aching, the heaviness, the fatigue at the end of a day, could be part of a problem that has a really easy fix that they just haven't identified as the issue. So awareness is definitely the most important take-home message here. But of course, if you're stuck in a job that has you on your feet all day long, it can be pretty challenging. It can be. And oftentimes, people who are in positions where they walk, they do just fine. But it's our toll booth collectors, our hairdressers, sometimes our teachers, um, lobstermen, people who stand in the same position and don't have the opportunity to get those rhythmic calf contractions in that tend to have problems. All right. Well, you've taught me a lot. Thank you very much. <laughs> and you can find more information about venous disease, including the tip sheet, 10 ways to ease your venous symptoms at veinhealthcarecenter.com. That is the name of your practice, Vein Healthcare Center. And you are in South Portland, Maine, correct? That's right, Diane. Well, thanks for being with us. You've been listening to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, and I've been talking with Dr. Cindy Asbjornsson about veins, how to keep them healthy, and how they can be treated if they're not healthy. 
If you have any comments or questions about today's podcast or suggestions for future topics, send me an email, diane at dianeatwood.com. You can connect with me on Twitter at Catching Health, and Catching Health is also on Facebook. And for more health reporting that makes a difference, be sure to visit catchinghealth.com.